sorry. So the Lonely Man of Faith, which is a more philosophical writing, where he basically will use the text of the Chumash. He goes through the first two chapters in Bereshit and tries to describe, how the, as we mentioned last week, these two types of men. There's Adam 1, he calls, and Adam 2. And from there, he creates an entire philosophy of man's approach to the modern era, etc. And then there's the more classical, we'll call it Drush, where he'll look at the Pesukim and try to have a drush out of it. You know, uh, some sort of uh, ethical idea or a moral idea or Torah idea in, in the sense of a... So those are kind of the two, the, two, the two different things that will happen with the Chumash. Today is going to be more of going through a story in the text of this week's Parsha and seeing how Rabbi Salavechik learned that text, not only just to understand perhaps some of the things behind the particular story, but also life lessons, if, if you will. So less, I would say, a, a, a unified philosophy, but more of going through the text, he's going to pull out a bunch of different lessons that will emerge from this particular story. Are you ready? Ready. So, what's the story? The story is Perik Yudala, chapter 14, which is the story of the Battle of the Kings, the five kings and the four kings. A very unique story, probably something we often kind of read over, gloss over very quickly, because it's kind of strange. It's sandwiched between the story of, of Avram. Suddenly, we, like, we, we pause the story. There are, there, there's more sources over there. We pause the story to talk about these battle of these kings that somehow Avram gets thrown in between. It's so perplexing that the story emerges in this particular place that if you go back to the early um, biblical critics, there are those who want to argue that this is, this, this is an area they're, they're very confused about. It must have been added in later, and everyone's trying to kind of figure out why exactly we have this story. It deals with the conquest of foreign armies. There's no, it's not, there's no relationship here to the greater narrative that we've been discussing of Avram and his family, his relationship to Hashem. And more than that, nothing in this, these battles, in this, cha- in this entire chapter, seem crucial to the, you know, the understanding of who Avram was as a person. It's not isn't really developing him further, kind of what we're trying to do as we've been going through Parshish Lech Lecha. Or we open up Lech Lecha, Avram goes, and we kind of learn about the importance of Avram, severing his ties to the past, and Vayegro, we could talk about Avram in the, in, the, in the Akedah. What's going on here? What is relevant here? Why are we, you know, anyone here read Graves of Wrath? We've all read Graves of Wrath, right? Yeah. So now it's, it's intercalary. Every other chapter is the story of, of the, the family making their journey towards California, and then the the odd chapter which is a, is a random story almost that's a commentary chapter 15 I believe being one of the most famous chapters in literature so that's kind of what seems here it's like let's talk about Avram our kind of tangentially related story of Avram will throw to here these battle of these kings so the question that the Rabbi Salvation wants to deal with which again as we point out there are many everyone wants to deal with is why are we pausing and putting an intercalary chapter in the middle of Sefer Barajas, when it seems to in no way facilitate a deeper understanding to who Avraham is as a character, and how his relationship to Hashem is different, or his relationship to others is different. So what I want to do is actually read through the entire chapter quickly, just so we have a, a kind of a roadmap for what's going on here. Then we're going to look at, a, just very quickly as well, a couple approaches of more generally the classical commentators before we see how Rebetzalovitchik learns the story. We good? Good. Chapter 14. So it was in the days of these following kings. By the way, a lot of these kings show up much later on when Jewish people come back to Israel, come to Israel in Sefer Devarim 
at the way end of the, of the Torah, a lot of these kings show up again because that's when we're, they're re-entering the land of Israel. So there's this king again of these, these, these four kings and the five kings that go into battle. And they join forces in the valley of Sidim, now which is a dead beast. That's where the, the battle hits its climax. That's where the main battle happens. What happens? Twelve years they were subservient to Kidalomer. He wins out. He beats them. He's now overseeing them. They now are vassals in his state. And then in the thirteenth year, they rebel. They have enough. These, these five kings say we have enough of being subservient to Kidalomer. We are our own entities. And therefore they rebel. It seems like a classical story you'd read any time in really pretty much the modern time. One power comes a great power, and then even though the sun never sets on them, there's rebellion, and it sets on them. Great. In the 14th year, Kidalomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim at this place. Um, okay. And again, it's just kind of it's depicting what's going on here and how they and again going on and on about the battle and how they vanquished these these kings. And then the story becomes again a little more personal. You know, if you think about it from once you're reading a novel, it opens up. Oftentimes, novels well begin with a very particular story. Then it kind of opens up, and you kind of get the lay, lay of the land. And now back to the more particular and interesting narrative, if you will. The last line on page one, uh, or my page one. So the king of Sodom and Amorah, by the way, these, these five towns, no, 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 no relation to the current one, who will learn a lot more about next week's parsha, the ones that are destroyed, they go out into battle, and they engage in, they engage in this epic battle, where, um, again, these four kings and the five kings, and then they said, and by the way, just know, I'm going to read the whole thing inside, what was the, um, the topography of the land? It wasn't just a battlefield with a lot of you know, grass, but there were, in fact, were these, these pits that dotted the land that, were, um, that everyone kind of falling into as they were running to escape, and they couldn't get out. And what happens? These five kings are defeated. And what, what happens any time you have a... a we even see it now, well, the, the attempt of Putin to do this in Russia, in Ukraine, when you have a, a king uh, destroyed, that captures an enemy, and they, you take all their wealth, you take everything they have, which, by the way, is important to know, because we're going to contrast this to the way Avraham treats the people that he beats in a couple, you know, and he, 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 went, he went over, he's victorious over in a few moments. So the invaders seize all the wealth of Sodom and Amor, which, as we know from Lot, the, the parish already told us, well, again, we'll see this in a few minutes, Lot, Avram's cousin, nephew, that, that whatever the funny relationship over there, he goes to Sodom and Amorah because that's the, uh, the wealthiest, most beautiful lands. So these invaders come in and they seize everything and they go on their way. But what do they do when they seize everyone? They also take Lot. And all his wealth. Benachi Avram, the son of Avram's brother. And because he had a gun and settled in Sodom. So again, they, these five kings now are this victory. Their cap, the, the countries are looted, and along with everything they take, all the possessions, they also take 
Klot and all his possessions. Again, all this is, makes a lot of sense. And if you're a war, an enemy, two, two people meet, and the, the winner takes all the spoils. What happens? Now, here's the, this is why it's relevant to us. So someone escapes, someone escapes, and they run to Avraham the Ivri, Avraham, his, his, his moniker was the Ivri, who is dwelling then in Mamre uh, with his friends. Interesting, by the way, Avraham seemingly had these friends, Eshkel and Avner, and Aner, excuse me, and they go and tell him, look, look what happened. By the way, interesting, we mentioned last week, I think it was Sunday, um, we mentioned last week as well, Rav Chaim Heller, how he was Rabbi Salvechik's friend. We often don't think of great people as friends, but there are seemingly friends, you know. Everyone has all different sorts of relationships, and Avram was around, you know, had a, a wife, and he had a, at this point he didn't have a, a he didn't have Yitzchak yet, but he had a friend, he had friends. We also see Yehuda had a friend. Put it out there, we're going to see in a couple weeks, Yehuda, the, uh, it, it mentions he had a friend, like one, one, a Chir, I believe was his name. It's kind of funny what they're doing there. Emma gives a wonderful Shir on it, on Why You Torah, if you want to look it up. Fine. So they, they, when he hears what happens, <coughs> what does he do? So he hears that his Achiv uh, was captured. Interesting, Achiv is his brother, but So he quickly gathers up 318 people, and he goes in pursuit of Don, and he goes to, uh, to battle, which is interesting. You have these mighty armies, right? Four nations who vanquished five nations, and Avram's like, I can take, take them out. And he gathers up 318 people, and he goes to pursue. And he defeats them, and, and, and he basically rides them on, and, and chases them to Damascus. And what does he do then? He goes to their camp, and he gathers all the spoils and booty of war that they had collected, that they were planning to take to their homes, and he goes and he does a show of Taveda. By the way, you're missing something? Here's your wife back. You're missing something? Here's your money back. Including in that is, is, uh, is Lot. So then what happens? Uh, the king of Sodom then comes out and says, you saved my people, you saved my, my nation. And... And where are we? Something's off here in the... Something got cut out here. Give me one second. Pull up the actual... This, by the way, for those who are... This is... It's called the Chumash uh, Masorah Harav. A couple years ago, they took a lot of Salavetik's writings and they pulled out little paragraphs. It's not a running commentary, but paragraphs that are relevant to particular psukim, particular verses, and they placed it on each verse. So it's like a... It's not a running commentary, but it's a commentary from Rabbi Salavetik on the parasha. So it's very helpful here on the shear. <clears throat> I bought a copy of this for our show, so if you're on Shabbos and you want to see what I'm going to talk about that week, pull it out. Okay. Um, where are we? Sorry. Okay, so they're actually... Uh, um, okay, fine. So you know what? Okay, it's fine. So... The king of Sodom comes out, and he wants to, he wants to, uh, and if you, it's difficult to read out of order to get the uh, narrative right. King of Sodom comes out, and he says to Avram, He says, you give me all the souls and the possessions you can keep yourself. To which one Avram says back to him, 
he says to him, Right, a language we know well. He says, I am working for God. I don't want anything from you. I don't even want a shoe strap. I don't want, he says, I don't want um, a thread. I want nothing from you. We're all good. We're all good. And he said, except for the people who came with me, they can take their share. So that's this, the, the interaction Avram has with Sodom, which is, again, the contrast there is, whereas normally the, the, the winner takes all, Avram's like, I don't want your things. And there's a lot of com- the commentaries talk about why he used a particular shoestring and a, and a, and a, um, a thread. We're not going to get into that. But I skipped one part. Then, Malkitzedek comes out. Who's Malkitzedek? Unclear. Some say he's actually Shane, the son of Noah. He comes out and he brings wine and he brings bread to Avraham. What's that very reminiscent of? So it's almost like it's, we're looking at another Avraham here. Right? Avraham sat on the crossroads looking for the, the tire, the weary, the poor huddled masses yearning to be to eat. So that's what um that's what Machitek seemingly don't don't understand. It's very interesting, by the way. Again, what what was Avram's life mission to bring monotheism into the world? What does Machitek then do? He starts blessing God. So it almost seems like where there's a parallel here between this Machitek, whoever he was, what kind of Cohen was he? We didn't have Cohen, right? Levi wasn't born yet. So who exactly is he? What's going on here? But either way, so he uses the same language that Avram is going to use. Bless the Avram. And bless be God who also blessed all of you. So that, in short, is the story. Again, the we have four kings versus five kings. The four kings beat the five kings. Then they rebel. Ultimately, in the rebellion, the four king, kings then go and they win again. They take all the spoils of Sodom and Amorah, including in that lot. That's when the, someone comes to Avram. Some say he was Og, actually. The famous Og, the giant. Keeps showing up again and again. It's just uh, methodologically, there is a, we have a book here. It's called uh, Learning to Read Midrash by Simi Peters, one of Emma's teachers. She, she talks about why oftentimes, I forgot the name of the exact theory, but Chazal, the sages, they like, they like to use repeated, repeated characters. And they'll kind of say, oh, this person was that person, was that person, was that person. And the idea behind that is showing how there are certain messages or uh, themes that run throughout both that they want you to, you know, kind of see the parallel. So even if Magnetetic wasn't necessarily shame, but there's something about shame and something Magnetetic that we're trying to draw a parallel to by saying, oh, must be the same person. But we're not going to talk about that now. Either way, then Arvin gets into the story because he wants to go rescue his brother, his brother, his nephew, Lot. He calls his Ahsiv. He goes, he wins. He then, he gets, he gets greeted by two people, the king of Sodom, who he turns down his offer for any of the spoils. And this Malkitzedek, who we pointed out, seems to be Avram. He's standing at the crossroads. He sees someone who's, who needs food. He offers him food. And then he says, what, how did Avram draw everyone in? What, what was the story? What did Rashi tell us in, last week's, in this week's parasha, beginning of the parasha? What did, he, what did he do? He would invite these idolaters in. And after he'd say, by the way, you've got to say grace. Say, what's grace? you got to say thank you. Where did the food come from? You. But where did, where did I get it from? Sarah. And where did she get it from? You know, go, you draw it back to, it came from Hashem. And that's through benching, he introduced the idea of Hashem to the world. Which is interesting. I once saw from Vidalia Shore. In the Argadal Yo, I forgot who he quoted, who said that if we think about it, the benching becomes a crucial way, which happens 
know, pretty often a way to think about Hashem in, in a much more than just thank you, but also like bringing Hashem into this world. Because that's exactly the way Abraham did it. That you use benching. So when we bench, we should just uh, think for a moment think about I'm not just thanking you, God, but I'm also kind of bringing you into the world and remembering you. Although Jews do have a, a fear of benching. That we know. Like one of our one of the greatest fears a Jew has is benching. Which there's a fear of flashing, but it's worth the inflation. There's a fear of benching and the problem is that we also like eating. So like it's Okay. Well, cookies. So it, it, I don't want to get into that now, but it, there is, there are, there are opinions that we reject. But in the, in the Mishnah, that you say you do bench on the Shivas Haminim, you do bench on an Alamichia. If you think about it, if you go through it, read it, and it, uh, not, again, sidetrack. But Alamichia is a mini benching, at least according to some commentators. So you, you, the brain of is a little different, but again, even brain of is a fascinating bracha. We want to talk about it one day, but we basically we thank God for all the things He gives us and all the things He doesn't need to give us, yet He does give us. I think Tosfos says in bracha, it's like the apple. And we live probably found out an apple, but like an apple is awesome. Like God gives us so many things we don't need, but just to make our lives more enjoyable. That's brain of Okay, fine. So what's going on with the story? We opened up, we want to say, so why, what, what's the story doing here? How does it add to the greater narrative of Avraham? So Rabinavak and Abarbadel say that we're trying to actually, it does add to Avram, because don't just think of Avram as this you know, religious figure who sat in his tent and hopefully tried to do a little hero and get people to do, you know, to do, uh, one second, to do, um, you know, to do tshuva. But he also was a brilliant tactician. He was a mighty warrior. Like he wasn't, he was a man of the world. He knew, how, understood how to, uh, how to win battles. Yeah. Exactly. So that, 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 that's the Abarbanel. The Radak, the Rabag, also point out, and this is uh, something we'll see a little more of the Rub talks about, uh, loyalty. There's a loyalty here. That he was willing to risk his life, go against, fight for these four mighty nations for the sake of his nephew, which Ray Salvage could have pointed out was even more interesting because of the fight that happened with his nephew. Well, let's we'll pause for one minute for our, for our coffee because we can't, we can't live without coffee. So that was that that that's the approach of of, of the Rabag. Rabag also points out you see a selflessness here that he's willing to uh, give everything up, right? As we mentioned the the, the culture in the ancient Near East, but it's not just in the ancient Near East. Even now, you win, it's yours. And that's not it's not just finders keepers, losers wafers. It's you know you, the, the bully always wins. He gets it his. You get the victor gets the spoils of war. And here Avram was willing to give it up. So that's kind of also again it's fleshing out his character. And lastly, this is interesting. Rav Hirsch points out that. Perhaps part of our claim to the land of Israel isn't just that God gave it to us, but also from a military perspective, like we, Avram, chases them. Where did he chase them to? We mentioned all the way to Damascus. So we already see, already, if the, the assumption was, especially then you see the, the victor wins, well, Avram, Avram was the clear victory. And as we're about to begin the parashas where God's going to say to Avram, look east, look west, look north, look south, this is your land. It's going to be your children's land. Well, hey, why is it their land? Here's you know, a legal claim, if you will, that Avraham took, Avraham was able to um, capture the land. So that are just some of the approaches of what, how, what the story is doing here. Comes along with Salvation, and he's going to offer another, another dimension. And he says as follows. Who is the people? Who are we dealing with in the stories here? Who is Amraphel? One of the kings. So Rashi tells us, Amraphel, who... Nimrod, the famous or infamous, notorious Nimrod. Who, by the way, what did Nimrod do to Avram? Threw him into the fire. Threw him into the fire. fire. fire right. 
This is Nimrod. Nimrod, who the Gemara and Erevin, if you look on the next page, the Gemara and Erevin says, Rafael, Rav Shmuel. So interesting, Rav and Shmuel, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen anyone write about this. Then again, I haven't really looked into this too much. Rav and Shmuel are always in these arguments, these historical arguments with each other over certain things. Like this. And it, the Gemara is never clear who said what. Like Rav and Shmuel got an argument, Paro. Was Paro, the Paro of the uh, Exodus story, the same Paro of Yosef, or was he a new Paro? We say Melech Hadash, meaning he was a new king, or a king who forgot about Yosef. Okay, so, Chad Omer Nimrod Shemo. Some say Amraphel's real name was Nimrod. Vilama Nikra Shemo Amraphel. So why does the Torah call him Amraphel? Shomer of a hippie, Amravina, but so Kibshan H. Because the word Amraphel, the, the Shoresh of it, the root of the word is like hippil to toss, and he's the one who tossed Avram into the Kibshanation, into the fiery furnace, so the, the Torah will call him Amraphel. Hey, remember, you know, it's another thing. Oftentimes, biblical names, they have a meaning behind them. Like, for instance, Hevel, right? Kain and Hevel. What does Hevel mean? Vanity, right? You think they, that's what they call their kid? Hey, vanity, come here. Not the bathroom, vanity. My parents are redoing the bathroom now, so that's how I'm thinking. You know, hey, hey, Hevel, come here. No, that's not what it means. He- the, the, the idea was that the Torah calls him Hevel to remind us of here is someone who never had children and never was able to do anything with his life because his life was cut short on day one. So, so Nimrod, they call him Raphael to remind you what, who was he. Don't just think he was oh, some king, I'm Raphael. Every time you mention his name, you remember he's the guy who took Avram Avinu and tossed him into a fiery furnace. The Chadamer, no, I'm Rafael Shema. I'm Rafael was his name. His parents, he woke, he, he, when he was born, they said, Vakari Shema, be Umas Olam, I'm Rafael. The Loma Nikar Shema Nimrod, so why do we call him Nimrod? What's the word uh, Nimrod, the source of the word Nimrod? Marad? Mered? The source of Mered means rebellion. Nimrod, why shall Morad? It's called Olam Kulo, Allah the Malchuso. Because this is strong language, he caused the entire world to rebel against God. He's the first antagonistic, whatever, I was an atheist. He was the first who really came out there and made the world rebel against God. So Nimrod is this person who the Gemara tells us is, um, is not exactly, uh, exactly going to be the rabbi of our show. Maybe other shows. No, I'm joking. Um, and more than that, the Gemara in Avodazar tells us, Amar. The Pasuk in Tehillim in Psalm tells us, Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. What's this referring to? Who's the person who didn't, walk, who didn't heed the counsel of the wicked? Fine. Sorry. Got ahead of myself. Who was Nimrod and what did Nimrod personify? He was a man who personified power. He was a person who personified the idea about the importance of power to the extreme. The most important thing is power, is the state having the power, and that's what Nimrod cared about. Sounds like a Republican. No comment. No comment. And I'm sure the Republicans will say it sounds like a Democrat because, as we all know, vices are universal. Virtues are not. Now, says, says, the, um, says the Rav, he, all he cared about was power, not just power of being in charge, but it, was, uh, it was the powerful it was about the state. In fact, the Resalvagic ties the Nimrod to the Darha Flaga, the, the Tower of Babel. What was their problem? It was also, it was about power. Let's let us go and attack God. Well, wage war with God. So much so that the Midrash tells us that when they were building this, power, this, this huge building, this, this, this Tower of Babel, and some, a person would fall off the scaffolding and die, 
All right, he's just a person. Let the building go on. If a brick would fall down and crack, they'd start to cry. What's, that? What's the idea behind it? What's it symbolizing? That they took the idea of the state, of be, of the, again, the state meaning with a, like a capital S, about the, uh, the uh, idea of there has to be the kingdom to an extreme. Almost like, you know, think almost like in a communistic sense. Not about the people, it's about the people giving to the state. It's about the state being the, uh, the all-powerful. It's about, you know, the, and that's why it says that the Asher Ha'ish, Asher Lo Avram, the person in here that counts the wicked, this is Avram, because when everyone said, let's go build a tower to attack God, Avram says, I'm not, I'm not following you. That there's more, there's, a, there, there's an idea that there is a value and dignity to the, to, to the human, even if he's not part of the greater, the greater idea of the state. That it's not just about the, the state, it's not just about the country, but every human being has a certain, has a certain the dignity that in and of themselves make them a world unto themselves, as Chazal tells the sages tell us. So Nimrod and what he personified, these four kings, they were about, again, the idea of a state, about everything belonging to the state, about the, about the state telling you, you are just a pawn so that we can push the, the goal of our greater culture and our greater country to where it has to be. That is in contrast, that is in contrast to, to Sodom. What's Sodom, Sodom known for? But in this, in this sense, what was it? Selfish, a selfishness. Uh, but at the root of that, Cesare Salvechik, was the hedonism. It wasn't about, the, what's the greatest goal? The greatest goal wasn't the state, but it was about personal gratification. A hedonism. Something I think we struggle with now. You know, in almost like in a Benthianism way of, uh, you know, of, of utilitarianism. The greatest good that can be accomplished is the most amount of pleasure with the least amount of pain. And you can take that equation and plug it into the way society will make its, will make its uh, whatever political decisions or the individual will make their personal decisions. If pleasure is the ultimate goal... So then everything else has to kind of fit into that. So you have these two, you have these two uh, extremes, if you will. You have Nimrod is personifying the state, and you have Sodom that's personifying hedonism. To an extent of, again, where all decisions are, all decisions are going to be, how are we going to get the most amount of pleasure with the least amount of pain or the least amount of hurt to anyone else around us? Which means all morals go out the window because morals, if, if, it's, not, if it's not hurting anyone else, so, and I enjoy it, so why can't I do it? Those sort of questions are the questions that they, and the, the uh, calculations we're making in Sodom. I thought an interesting way to look at it was to com- compare and contrast uh, two, two people. Uh, Winston Smith. Who's Winston Smith? The clock struck 13th as Winston Smith crossed the square. 1984. George Orwell. Winston Smith is the main character. Protagonist, 1984. So you have these, there were these two books that came out, you know, in the uh, tw- between the 20s and the 30s. You have Brave New World. Brave New World is written by uh, Aldous Huxley. Anyone here read it? You read Brave New World? Probably in high school, so it's okay. I forgot what I learned last week. Brave New World, 1984. There's a lot of comparing and contrasting, but both of them talk about a dystopian world. Dystopian meaning the an ultimate a world where the, you have the ultimate uh, manifestation of what, should, what something should be. 
1984? What's the idea behind 1984? You have the state. The state is the state is the most important thing, and everyone has to conform to the state. And therefore, the way in which the state controls everyone is by creating Big Brother watching you, the thought police. But all of it is about erasing your identity because you are just a vassal to allow the state to go on. It's about erasing identity. That's 1984. You're crazy if you don't follow the state. Well, not crazy. Well, yeah. Okay. So in brainwashing. The thought police, that's 1984. In Brave New World, it's the opposite. How does the state control everyone? It's almost like when you first read it, it's almost like a utopia novel. Everyone, everyone, there's, there's no police around, or very little. Everyone does what they want. The way they control people is through pleasure. They, give, they just give everything, every, every, everyone everything they want. And anytime someone start, starts feeling uh, questioning or somewhere we're getting the idea of rebellion, they gave them a drug that just made them happy. And they control the people through, through uh, pleasure, which is also interesting because the, uh, this idea that I can do what I want as long as it doesn't hurt you, and you, you, when that becomes institutionalized, it ends up hurting people, which you see, in, which, which, is his, which, his, which was the Huxley's point in, in Brave New World, because then you have to – people – not everyone's going to conform to that, so how do you deal with them? And that's the brainwashing will happen then as well. No, you are happy. No, you are happy. No, you are happy. No, this is okay. You're crazy for not thinking it, et cetera. But you're totally green. So – so this is, these are these two worlds, and I think in a way, it's, it's like if you have like Sodom, the five kings and the four kings, you, you have the, the kings are like, no, it's all about the state, Nimrod, all-powerful, and then you have, 19, you have Brave New World where it's like, no, do what you want, all is free, all is good until you start not towing the party line, and then we're going to find a way in which to conform you, right? Don't have guests. How dare you have guests? Low? How dare you have guests? That's, you have guests, you're going to take away from the resources that we have in our city, and therefore I can't get, I can't have, you know, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be affected because you have guests because I can't, and if I go to the store now, and they're not they're going to be out of fewer products, or he's going to walk on the street now and it's going to take away from me. Me does Sodom is what we talk about. So it also becomes dystopian in a way, this idea of like, I can do what I want, it doesn't hurt anyone else. Where is Avraham? This is the fascinating part. He's right in middle. You have, these two, you have these two, and this is where Salvatore points out the first main point he makes. You have these two cultures, opposing cultures, battling it out, and Avram gets sucked right in the middle. He can't escape it. It's going on around. He, he, he's stuck in the middle. He's sucked right into the, um, into the middle of this, this, this dispute. As if to say, you can't sit on the sidelines. You can't sit on the sidelines. There's, these cult, there's a cultural war going out there, and either you have to pick and kind of like hold your nose and pick, or find, no, or find a way to navigate the fact that when the culture around you is having this massive, massive fight, there's just no sitting on the sidelines. It just does, doesn't work that way. Even if you try to sit on the sidelines, you go to Mamre, all good, with your tent, living the, the utopian life. Something's going to pull you back to that. It's, just, it's, a, it's a fact, the reality of life. And that, that's number, the first thing I saw Edu points out. That you, can't, you can't live in this bubble which is unfortunate. Like these are, this isn't. A, it's not talking about living in a bubble where like you're you're ignoring your secular culture and what the outside world has to offer. This is Avram trying to avoid this, these these two dystopian worlds, these two com, these two competing negative negative uh, world views. And it's like you're going to be stuck a day. You're just being part of a culture. These these ideas seep in. These ideas seep in. And even though Avram had his own unique thing to offer and he's trying to spread it, no, it's going to seep in. You're, these, are, these are things you have to be aware about so you can fight back and realize and recognize when the idea either of the state or the, or the hedonism starts to seep into your, into your life. So that's the first thing Rabbi Salvechik pulls out of this week's this, this fight. Number two is, I think, also very interesting. And that is as follows. 
This is very apropos. He then turns to Lot. Who is Lot? Other than being the nephew of Avram. Whose father, by the way, according to the Midrash, who was his, fa- his father was Haran, who when he saw Avram get thrown into the Kibshan Eish by Nimrod, he also volunteered to get thrown inside this fiery furnace. But he did it not out of, uh, not, not out of uh, Lishma, not for the right reasons, so he wasn't saved. So Lot is now an orphan, and Avram takes him in. And he, he lives with Avram, he, he learns from Avram, we even see as well, even when he's living in Sodom, he, he, he brings in guests. Who is he? He's Avram's nephew. But what happened? There was a very famous machlokas, a fight that happened, which again, we spent a lot of time, we're, we're not going to. Vayomer Avram el Lot. So Avram says to Lot, there's this machlokas going on, this fight happens between their shepherds. Basically what it boils down to is, according to the most, basically Rashi learns it is, Avram put muzzles on all his, his, his uh, livestock, and Lot didn't. And because of that, they got into dispute. Lot said, it's our land. God gave it to us, so they can just go and you know, eat wherever they want. So they get into this dispute. Says Avram, sometimes the best way to avoid having a real machlokas is to do what? Do what? Let there not be a dispute between me and you. Between my shepherds and your shepherds. We're brothers. If we let this go on, the animosity and acrimony is going to just, it's going to build up and weld up within us, and it's going to cause a real division that we don't want. So let's nip it in the bud now, and let's go in our separate ways. You go your way, I go my way, and then we'll always have fond memories of each other. All right? Seems like a way of avoiding dispute. What, what is it? What is it? So what happens? The Lot then looks up, and he sees Sodom, this place of Sodom, and says... And he knew, right? The Pasuk tells us right away, Sodom tells us right away, Sodom was a place of very wicked sinners against God. Don't think this was like, oh, nice place to live, I'll move there. He knew exactly what he was getting himself into. He knew exactly what Sodom was. Says, says Rashi, he knew exactly what they were. He was, even though, I'd rather, you know, I'm following my money. I'm following hedonism. That's oftentimes what happens when you introduce money and, and, and luxury into, into the equation. Suddenly, values start falling away. The reality of life. So, if, and if you're going to, if you trace this as well, again, as always, we're running out of time. But basically, Lot knew what he was getting into, and Lot wanted it. You know, I said, the, the Pasuk tells us, Vashem Omer al Avram, oh, sorry, excuse me. Vayisa Lot, it's Eino Vayar, es kol kikar ayardin, ki kila mishke, listening as chakal Hashem, as Adom, as Amor, kigan Hashem, Eretz Yisraim, bukkal Tzohar. So Lot lifts his eyes, he sees the plain of Jordan, he sees this, it's watered, it's luscious, it's a beautiful oasis in the, in the, the desert down there in the Negev. And he wants to go there, says says Rashi there, it's more than that, he does a play on words, he says, actually, he says, I desire to go there so that I'll no longer, I'll no longer be with Avraham, nor his God. It wasn't just, he wants to go there, he knew what he was getting into. And again, I'm, we don't have so much time, I don't want to, I'd love to develop that character of Lot more, maybe next year, but Lot basically got to the point where he learned what he learned from Avraham, and he said, it's time to move on. I don't want to be living this life anymore. I, want to be, I don't want to be having guests all the time. It's time to move on. And he sees this is his opportunity not just to move on, but to say, by Avram, by the God of Avram. I'm going on. I'm moving to and putting myself and inserting myself into, into Sodom. So much so that when the Malachim, the, the angels come to, to rescue Lot, says the Pasuk, and this is in Vayeru, next week's power of Yobushnaim Malachim Sodoma, Be'erev, Velo Yoshe Be'shar Sodom. Where was Lot sitting at the entrance to Sodom? 
Why was he sitting at the entrance of Sodom? Because who sits at the entrance of the city, says Rashi? The judges. It was on that day he was appointed to be the judge. He was a minister now of Sodom. How did he become a minister of Sodom? Right? How did he become a minister of Sodom? You live there. And you become one of its people, right? That's not to mention politics, but that's one of the, one of the arguments that happens at every, politi- every time there's an election. You have someone who's like, oh, they don't really live here. They don't really live here. How can we vote? They don't really live here. It happens every time. Don't, don't think it's just right now. Every, I think every, every single election, they don't live here. They really live in, uh, in Israel. Okay. That was the last one, if you remember. Okay. So he's become a full-fledged member of society at this, po- at this point. He didn't choose to, he didn't care he was living among sinners. And in fact, he, he becomes one of their leaders which means he's adjudicating their law. And if he's, it's, it's their law, it's also then their warped vision of what society should look like. Right? That's what it is. We have this concept called meet us to don't. It's when I say what's mine is mine. It doesn't affect you if you have any, but I don't care. And he's the one that comes to me like, well, you know, my neighbor wants to borrow salt. Don't give it to him. My neighbor wanted to do Don't. Everything I do, like the edge of the town, you might think, well, he's because he's ready to leave. He's going to give up and he's ready to leave. The shah, I, mean, I think the, the idea of it is a shah ear. He's sitting at the, at the, at the, as a gatekeeper, kind of saying, "I'm, I'm the judge." Which means again, he's giving, he's giving. You were a certain point person, be sitting in the middle of the city, not as a gate. So they have to understand, I guess, how how they did it back then. But Raj, this is the way Rashi learns it. And yet he uh, welcomes the. Uh Okay, he still had part of Avram in him. He still had those values in him, clearly. Although even that story is a really wild story. He offers his daughters to the crowd and, yeah. and keeps his guests, which just shows you, again, when you, when, you, when you lack a foundation. And it's just you have some nice ideas. I want to live this way. And you pick and choose, so you end up with a warped sense of... of um, I, reality. Not reality, but of values. values. He, he, he valued hospitality... But he didn't value the fact that he was going to give his daughters out to the city to do what they wanted. Like, something's off about that because he didn't have a foundation. He lacked a foundation. He didn't have the anchor, which is what Torah is supposed to provide. It's, supposed to, it's, not, it's a comprehensive system, not just a, a nice law here and a nice law there, and I choose this and I choose that. So here's the question with salvage gas. Here you have Lot. He leaves Avram. He not just leaves Avram uh, physically, but in terms of intellectually, uh, in his, his, his values. He moves to Sodom. He becomes such a part of the society, Sodom, which didn't like outsiders, appoints him the judge. Appoints him a judge. Now he's a minister in Sodom. So why, asks Rabbi Soloveitchik, why is he singled out? If you go back to the beginning, it's like, and they took all of the possessions, and they also took Lot. And then it seems like Lot becomes a bargaining chip in this debate of how, how to get people back, how to get the uh, Sodom back, the people of Sodom back. So when I always read it, I always assumed that just because Lot's more relevant to our story, because the story of Avram and Avram Lot's, that's where we're mentioning it. But Rabbi Salvage doesn't say that. It's not just because Lot's more relevant. He Lot is singled out. Well, the thing, I mean, if you come from a you know, bad start, so you're not a bad generation, that's not surprising. But if you come from a you know, family that, in fact, has values, you still can turn out bad if you choose if you choose incorrectly. If you come from a family with bad values, then what? If you come from a family with bad values, and when the family is bad, okay, so they produce children of bad, it's not surprising. But, you know, a family that's you know, good, and, and, and now there's someone who's not good, it shows you that even with good family, you, you can still have, have bad Right, no, correct, but that's not, the, the question I'm asking, I'm asking is why is he singled out? Is why in this battle? He's clearly singled out by the enemy, so they're a salvation, and he's named 
And he, yeah. No, no, I mean here, here. Yeah, they, you're, you're, you're for sure. What you're saying is can be correct in that answer. But why in the story of these? Again, you have these two, these two nations. Well, two, two sides, four kings and five is fighting it out. One is Avram gets drawn into this, even though this, 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 this battle is because living there, these, again, these two cultures, which, by the way, Rasul also points out, the culture of hedonism, what happens to them? They become, you know, they become lazy. It's all about themselves. They, and they stop training, and that's why you have five kings are just defeated by the four kings, because the four kings are power, and they're on the mark. Okay, that's just an uh, interesting observation. Yeah. So that can be okay, correct. So I, I always thought it was one of those. Either they thought it was a relationship to Avram, or because it's more relevant to our story, but I think it's what you're saying, but a step further. It says, Rizalovechik, because a Jew can assimilate as much as they want, as much as you want, you can part of a, whatever cult you are, but ultimately, the it's sad so fact of history is, so you're always going to be different. Yep. You, can, you could be intermarried. You can, you're, you, can, you, can associate, you can call yourself not Jewish. It's impossible to escape it. It's just, just it's the reality. It's the, it's the fact of history. Wait, the, the, I think the, I think I believe the laws in Germany were if you had a Jewish grand, one Jewish grandparent, you were in trouble. So that that's 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 the next part of it. That it's just it's the reality of life, and we see it. We see it. You look at in America now. And unfortunately, with the, it's, just, it's the reality. You can try. You can try. You can try. You can move to Sedan. You become the minister. But you're going to be singled out when it comes to battle. Just like Joseph. Just like Joseph. I mean, it's just the reality of life. It's, it's, it's throughout history. You can try to assimilate. You're never going to be able. It's, it, there was a, there was a famous, very very cynical line. I forgot who said it. That he says, "If Jews don't make kiddush, meaning we don't we don't we're not makadosh stuff. We don't separate ourselves in a in a positive way. To be to sanctify ourselves, then they will make havdalah. They'll say no, separation." And it's a, it's, a, it's a sad fact of life. We just, you know, as much as we want to, or some people want to acculturate and assimilate, we'll always be reminded there's a battle going on between two people. You're not even part. You're not. You're, you're not. Two people. Two nations. And somehow Lot becomes the one who is the, the bargaining chip. Lot's the center of the story. Why Lot? He's like, I'm a member of Sodom. I'm a card-carrying member of Sodom. No, but don't you know where you come from? Don't you know who you are? Exactly, yeah. That's true. Let me tell you a story. Can we, we hold it till after? I'm sorry? Can we hold the story till after? Okay. Sure. Remind the Rabbi Eli, um, I forgot his name, who became a heretic, but at the end, uh, yeah. when they wanted to uh, annihilate the Jews and stop the Shabbos, he, he became back. He, he went so there are, there, are lots of, there are lots of stories. I mean, you find this. This is, that's the next part. That, I, I want to go uh, uh, what, um, what Elliot was saying, it's, it works the other way as, as well. That Yisrael Afbishachot Yisrael Have, it's not just in a negative. There's also something positive about that, that no matter how far a Jew goes, they can always come back, which is your point. And Lot may be living in Sodom, and maybe a minister, a car carrying member of Sodom, and what did Avram say? I'm going to save him because he's still my brother. He's still my brother. And Lot can still come back, and Lot can still return, which is. Fascinating about Avram, two point. One is the loyalty Avram had because he could have said, you know, you made your choice. We sat there, we said, you could have gone anywhere in the world, you chose to go there, goodbye. You stroll off, there's always, the, you're, always, you're always a Jew, you can't, you can't escape it for, for better or for worse. For better or for worse. They will remind you, but you can also remind yourself. And that's number two, the second part that, that um, Rabbi Salvatore pulls out, pulls out of this. And that brings us to the third part. Again, it all, it's, in a way, it all builds off each other. Number, part, number one is, 
we'll always be drawn to conflicts. Number two is even if we try to, try to escape and say, I'm one of you, we'll be reminded. And number three is there's a certain loneliness to the Jew and to even individual. Says Avraham, says the Rabbi Salvechik, what was Avraham called? He's introduced in the stories, Avraham Ivri. What is Ivri comes from the word Avar, the other. He was separate. And again, we know he lived his life, life separate. He made a choice, a conscious choice, Lech Lecha, to go for himself, to leave his family. The values he was raised with, to leave the city, the, the culture that he was from, to leave the country, the, in general, the, the, the religion, and say, I'm going to be separate, I'm going to be nomadic, I'm going to travel, I'm not going to be accepted by you, I know that. So he chose to be separate. But also, it's a lone, there's a loneliness to that. Avram doesn't have any friends. He says, right, Salvagic, as much as we said, his friends, his friends came. His friends come to rescue him. Where do his friends then go, says Rashi? Those two friends who said, by the way, don't you know, do you know your, 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 your nephew, your, your, you have to go to war, battle? What happens to those friends, says Rashi? Avadi Asherhochli Tov Od Anar Eshko Mamri. While Avram took his servants to battle, what happened to these two friends? They stayed behind. They're like, oh, Avram, we'll watch over your household while you're gone. We'll make sure no one comes in and steals anything. It was nice, it says, it says the Rav, if you're going out to battle and you're risking your life and you're about to literally take a stand against the world, in this case, both, again, stand against the world because you're fighting, but also if you think from the, from the philosophical perspective, you're about to stand against these two nations who, who you oppose everything they believe, their philosophy, their ideology. Who do you want on your side? Your servants or your friends? The people you trust most. The people who care about you most in the world. And the fact that people care about you most in the world, like, oh, don't worry, we'll be helpful too. You go out there, we'll stay here, but don't worry, your house, we'll make sure no one comes in. He goes, if you look at it that way, it's less about being friends and more about saying, we're your acquaintances. We're there for you when you're really, when we need something. He lived alone. The Jew, in a way, lives alone. And that is number, part number three that Rav takes out of the parish, which is all summed up in the last, this comes from his book, Avram's Journey, which is, again, a reflection of the life of our founding patriarch. We'll read it now, sum it up, and then we'll uh, open for questions and a story. The episode of the Warring Kings teaches us many things. First, the Jew is caught in a titanic struggle between two powerful blocks in world history. A Jew can never be an outsider to great events. He's always entangled against his will in great events that take place. Right? When you have things that are going on in the world, whatever struggle it may be, it's also true, by the way, not just ideologically. You always have a struggle. Somehow the Jews get pulled into it. It's just reality. Anytime there's a fight. It's their fault, they're, they're this, the Jews are always blamed, they're, they're, they find themselves and they say they want to be neutral. They want to be neutral. How can you be neutral? How can you be neutral? Don't you know? You can't be neutral. Second, even though Abraham rejected both ideologies, the ideology of pleasure and the ideology of power, he had to side with one of them because the other had captured low. Which is, again, I didn't, I didn't emphasize this as much as well. As much as also you have these two ideologies, sometimes you have to, again, you know, hold your nose and choose one because that's ultimately, they had low. So he had a side with pleasure and all, and the hedonism, he had a side with that and take the, because he needed to rescue his brother, his nephew, excuse me. That's also part of it. There's an aspect of having to sacrifice sometimes, not your values because, um, as a full sacrifice of values, but having to at some point capitulate to some extent so that you can achieve certain goals. Third, when caught in the whirlwind of history, the Jew is carried like a leaf in the dark autumnal night. There is no difference between a loyal Jew and an assimilated Jew. 
between Avraham and Lo. When you're Avraham and Mamre or Lo living in Sodom, you are a Jew and labeled a Jew. On the contrary, Lo was more exposed to danger. And fourth, number four, is Abraham must understand that his destiny is one of loneliness, such as the unfolding of the great drama of Jewish existence. We're a lonely people. That we have each other, but ultimately, and we know, and we, we're very lucky in the age we live right now. Well, we have real friends. But at the same point, I think all of us somewhere back in our mind know what happened, know, know the story of history, and there's a certain loneliness to that. And that's number, number four that he pulls out of, again, this story. So we opened up and we asked, why is this story here? What relevance is this story? He even points out there's some, uh, some academics who claim, oh, the story must have been added in later. Because it has nothing to do with the Abrahamic narrative. And the answer is no, it has everything to do with it. It's telling us, either it's fleshing out Avram as a character, but it's also these, le- these major lessons that don't, you know, Avram, who went out into the world, recognized he was lonely. Recognized the Avram who opened the tent up to everyone to introduce monotheism, couldn't just live alone in a, in a, in a, in a bubble. But he was sucked into the greater, the greater conflicts of the world, both physically and also ideologically. And lastly, we pointed out, I went out of order here, and lastly, we pointed out that a Jew is always a Jew. And Avram, when he, once he said, I'm going to be Avram, I'm going to be different, Lech Lecha, I'm going to leave the land of my fathers, he was destining himself to a destiny, as Rabbi Salvatic said, of loneliness, of, in a way, being himself, of only having himself, because he's different. And he knew he was different, and he would be reminded he was different if he ever tried to be the same. Wish you all a wonderful Shabbos. Yeah.